Someone told me we're doing Genesis today. Is that right? Yes, we are. Uh, Martin Luther said the first chapter of Genesis, that's chapter 1, uh, is written in the simplest language, yet it contains matters of utmost importance and very difficult to understand. It was for this reason, he goes on to say, as St. Jerome asserts, that among the Hebrews it was forbidden for anyone under 30 to read chapter 1 or to expound on it to others. So I got some good news and I got some bad news this morning. The bad news is this. We are looking at Genesis chapter 1 today. But the good news is that I am over 30 just barely. (laughs) Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Readings from Genesis 1 and Exodus 2 and 3. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Exodus 2. During those days, sorry, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Exodus 3. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel, and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we thank you that um, that you are here. We ask that you would fill us with your Spirit. We thank you that your Spirit hovered over the great chaotic deep at the beginning of all things, and then it hovered over your people as they went through the Red Sea, and then it hovered over the new creation, the second Adam at his baptism, and now hovered over the church at Pentecost. And now, Lord, your spirit indwells us, hovers over us, and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Open our eyes, make it clear to our minds, make yourself real to our hearts. Do what only you can do, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all, so in book one of Harry Potter, which is the Sorcerer's Stone, y'all might recall that Harry has a moment. Uh, The Academy might call that moment a worldview change, which between you and me is just way too cerebral. Ten years ago, the language in our culture and in the church and the business might have called it a paradigm shift, which between you and me is just way too pragmatic for what happened. Uh, The religious folks might say it was a spiritual surrender, a redirection of the will, a decision or a choice towards God or towards being good in some profound way, which between you and me, to describe that moment with, that happened to Harry is way too mechanical. <laughs> it's way too calculated. It's way too sterile. A choice, a decision, come on. Irreligion might call it self-discovery. A personal awakening, which between you and me uh, is way too tame for what happened to Harry. 
He passed the sausages to Harry. He was so hungry. He had never tasted anything so wonderful, but he still couldn't take his eyes off the giant. <laughs> Finally, as nobody seemed about to explain anything, he said, I'm sorry, but I really don't know who you are. The giant took a gulp of tea and wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. <laughs> Call me Hagrid, he said. Everyone does. And like I told you, I'm keeper of the keys at Hogwarts. You'll know about Hogwarts, of course. Um, no, I don't. Do you mean to tell me, he growls at the Dursleys, <laughs> that this boy, this boy knows nothing about, about anything? Harry thought this was going just a bit too far. He had been to school, after all, and his marks weren't that bad. I know some things, he said. I, can, I know I can do math and stuff. But Haggard simply waved his hand and said, About our world, I mean. Your world, my world, your parents' world. What world, said Harry. Haggard looked as he was about to explode. Dursley, he booms, right? But you must know about your mom and dad, he said. I mean, they're famous. You're famous. What? My mom and dad weren't famous, were they? You don't know? You don't know. Haggard ran his fingers through his hair, fixing Harry with a bewildered stare. You don't know what you are? Uncle Verdon, Verdon suddenly found his voice. Stop! Stop, he commanded. Stop right there, sir. I forbid you to tell the boy anything. When Hagrid spoke, his every syllable trembled with rage. You never told him, did you? You never gave him Dumbledore's letter, did you? You never told him who he was. Kept me from what? Harry said eagerly. Stop! I forbid you! Yelled Uncle Vernon in panic while Aunt Petunia gave a gasp of horror. Ooh, remember Aunt Petunia? She's a Petunia. Harry, you're a wizard. There was a silence inside the hut. <laughs> Only the sea and the whistling wind could be heard. I'm a what? Gasped Harry. You're a wizard. What else could you be? The boy who never knew his parents. The boy who was never loved. The boy who was exiled under the stairs at number four Privet Drive. The boy that did strange things, but he never knew why had a moment, he began to grasp the true story of the world, his world. Fleming Rutledge, author of The Crucifixion, said recently in an interview that she studied two psychoanalysts. Psychoanalysts do psychoanalysis, which explores the unconscious parts of us to help us. In other words, you and I do conscious Acts of the will, 
voluntary things, good and bad, but psychoanalysts study the more subconscious, unconscious, the dark thoughts and beliefs and feelings that are deep in your bones that you can't volunteer. They just are. One of these psychoanalysts told Fleming Rutledge, there is no greater power than the power of being understood. It reaches to the core of your being. Being understood by yourself and being understood by another is being human. The woman at the well in the Gospel of John, who happens to be a serial sexual sinner, agrees with the psychoanalyst. Do you remember what she says to the scandalized, her scandalized hometown? She's just in line with those psychoanalysts. She says, come, see a man that told me everything, everything about me, everything I've done. And it was good news to her. It was powerful, freeing, life-giving news to her. The Apostle Paul explains the power of being understood this way. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known or understood. I want you to look at the first three words of the Bible. My Bible won't even stand at this, this place. It's the beginning. This massive thing is trying to, it just is not working up here, right? Look at the first three words together. In the beginning, <laughs> this is an invitation. This is an invitation to the greatest story ever told. This is an invitation to the story of the world. This is an invitation to the story, your story, your world. This is an invitation to you and I gaining understanding that goes down to our bones and sets us free. This is an invitation to what the psychoanalysts were saying. There's no greater power than being understood. Harry, you're a wizard. What else could you do? Do you feel lost in the world? For some of you, it might be literal, meaning you don't know your parents. You were orphaned, adopted, in foster care. For others of you, it may be that you feel lost in the world because you struggle with all the competing stories that are out there about the world, trying to tell you the story of the world, trying to tell you your story, trying to tell you what life means. And you ask yourself, like, who has the right, the authority, to determine what story is true? What story is true? And what story is shaping me? Because it's not like you can just say, we're this neutral person, and here's story number one, story number two, story number three. Well, when you go to college, you realize there's a lot more stories and theories, right? And we kind of analyze them like we're this person sitting here and we're like, which one is it? Which one do we believe? Which one we're going to enter? Not realizing the whole time you're in a story right now. And it's shaping you and it's molding you and it's determining the way you see life. And it's, it could be like the Dursley story. 
You had no parents, Harry. You're not a loved person. Live under the stairs, exiled. But I do these strange things, and I just don't know about them. I don't know why I do them. For others of us, it may be that happiness and meaning are very elusive to us because we struggle with hope and we're first in our class and we earn six figures in our salary and we're the star of our own reality TV show or some Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, social media. Some of us struggle with shame so deeply. You know what shame is? Shame is the powerful, painful feeling of not being good enough. Therefore, you're not worthy of love and acceptance. That's debilitating. That's dehumanizing. And so when you get around other people, you're always inferior in your own eyes, and you feel it. It's not like, talk about psychoanalysts, it's not because you choose to be that way, it's because you are. If you feel lost in the world, Genesis is for you. God put this book in his word for you. Are you unloved? Are you lonely? Are you alone? Are you invisible in this world? Genesis is for you. Do you live exiled under the stairs at number four, Privet Drive? In other words, do you live with a wrecked relationship with God, a wrecked relationship with others, a wrecked relationship with work, a wrecked relationship with sex, a wrecked relationship with money, a wrecked relationship with things that you used to find great joy and pleasure out of, but you just don't anymore, a wrecked relationship with people you used to love, and used to love you, but you don't and they don't anymore. Genesis is for you. Do you struggle with yourself? Do you do strange things, but you just can't explain them? <laughs> right? Oh, my word. Do you feel imprisoned in one of the Multiform prisons of self, and I say multiform because your imprisonment, self-imprisonment might be different from your spouse's, it might be different from your child, it might be different from your neighbor, it might be different from this culture and that race and that view. Do you long to understand yourself? Do you long to be set free from yourself? Do you long to actually love another, serve others, bless others? Genesis, Genesis is for you. Genesis invites us into the story of the world, which is your world and your story. Harry, you're a wizard. What else could you be? Let's look at verse 1 together again. In the beginning, God. Did you see that? In the beginning, God. I mean, I've read so... I've. If you read articles or you look at commentaries or you look at the more expositional ones, which in other words, you take someone's sermon and they turn it to a commentary and they call it an expositional commentary. And sometimes they're really good because it's the sermon, right? But then other times if you're looking for meaning and textual depth, they're really not. But almost everybody makes a big deal out in the beginning, God. 
God in the beginning, right? Not us, God. This means that everything or origins, which is the title of the series, begins with God. It doesn't begin with us. In the beginning, God, not us. In the beginning, God tells the story of the world. We don't narrate our own. Evolutionary theory doesn't narrate our story. And every other ism and schism and thing that's out there today. What this means is that God tells us the story of the world, not us, because we cannot get to the bottom of the world. We cannot get to the bottom of our hearts. We can't get to the bottom of our relationships. We can't get to the bottom of our stories. We can't get to the bottom of our lives. It is a bottomless, infinite, black abyss, and we can't go there. But someone else can. Tony Dokafil, writing for Newsweek in 2013, wrote, In a time defined by ever more social progress and astounding innovations, we have never, never been more burdened by sadness or more consumed by self-harm. Who can explain that? Only someone who can get to the bottom of your heart. Only someone who can get to the bottom of the world. Only someone who laid the foundations. Only someone who can get to the bottom of life. The University of Pennsylvania formed a task force 2013-14 school year to study mental health on campus. Their final report cited something they called the Penn face. And I'm sure there's a Baylor face, and I'm sure for my dad there's a Cornell face, because if I mention Penn without mentioning Cornell, he might get jealous. <laughs> or Columbia, whatever. The practice, here's the, here's the pen face, the practice of, quote, acting happy and self-assured even when sad or stressed. The face desperately trying to portray something that's not going down in the bottom. Desperately trying to portray something else than the, the great chaotic deep going on in the soul. So who can change your face? When God talks about putting his face towards you, he talks about putting his joy on you, his favor on you, his, his affection and his affirmation on you. And when he sets his face on you, it says that everyone that sees his face has their face lit up, come alive. Who can change your face? Only someone who can get to the bottom of your heart. Only someone who can get to the bottom of the world. Only someone who can get to the bottom of the story. The New York Times did a follow-up article on the Penn face. They profiled a Penn undergraduate named Catherine DeWitt. DeWitt recalls how upset she was learning, how upset she was when she learned that she had uncharacteristically, and that's a key word, I guess, in this article, scored in the 60s on a calculus exam. First of all, I would say, of course she did. Who gets anything above a 50 on a calculus exam? <laughs> if Catherine was here, I'd make her feel really good. She said, I had a picture of my future, and as that future deteriorated, I stopped imagining another future. Man. 
Who can rewrite your story, your past, your present, your future? Only someone who can get to the bottom of your heart. Only someone who can get to the bottom of the world. Only someone who can get to the bottom of every story ever told. Poet Mary Carr describes the human ego as a stealthy, low-crawling, excuse me kids, bastard. Sometimes, though, kids, you really do need to cuss. It's the appropriate thing to do. Who can enter into this low-crawling story? Someone who can get lower. Someone who can go deeper. Someone who can get to the bottom of your heart and the bottom of your life. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God, like Hagrid, speaks reality into our hearts, into our lives, into our relationships, into our stories. Harry, you're a wizard. What else could you be? Look at verse 1 again, in the beginning, God. So if God tells the story of the world, he tells the story of our world, tells our stories, not us, then guess what's happening right at the beginning of the Bible, in the first three words of the Bible, guess what's happening? In the beginning, God, God is inviting you to listen. The whole, the whole beginning of the Bible is an invitation to listen to the story of the world, to listen to the one who can get to the bottom of everything. You know, Luther, Luther, if you're not familiar with Luther, you want to get familiar with Luther because he just has a way of, he says things that are just crystal clear, first of all, but then he says things with just this, Ooh, only Luther could say that. I never forget uh, our, my church history professor. He would talk to us, and he, we were all getting enthralled with Luther, and he could see that we were really excited about Luther and hearing about Luther and loved Luther. And he, finally, he just wanted to stop the celebrity worship. And he said, listen, 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 just so you guys don't get too carried away. Luther, um, you like Luther. And we're like, yeah. He goes, well, I can guarantee you he wouldn't like you. All right, so Luther says this, whenever you get into God's presence, whenever someone enters God's presence, the only thing to do in God's presence is to shut up and listen. No talking. When we get, when we open the Bible, the first three words of the Bible, in the beginning, God... We tend to want to dissect it and analyze it and master it and make it yield its content. You know what the Bible says? Shut up and listen. In the beginning, God, not us. So that's the question, right? How do you listen? What does listening look like? We're going to do something very, very shocking at the first series of this book of Genesis. I want you to, I'm sorry I have to do this to you, but it was done to me, so I'm just 
sharing the joy and the pain. In the beginning, God. Do you see God there? That word God, G-O-D. You could circle it. You could put a box around it. Uh, here's what's shocking. It's in the plural, not the singular. You catching that? That's a pretty creepy thing to say right at the beginning of the Bible. It's almost like, oh, whatever notion I have of God is now being blown up. Oh, God is suddenly starting to appear very strange to me. And maybe that's the point. So what's happening here, it does not mean, let me put your fears arrest. The ancient pagan world, they said God was many gods. It's not that. And then what tends to happen in our circles, right, church people, we freak out when something like this happens because we need to understand it. We need to control it. We can't let that happen. So we say things like, oh, this is a hidden reference to the Trinity, right, where you have one God and three persons, and the plurality is referring to the three persons. I hate to do this to you, but that's not what this means. So what does this mean? God in the plural, you know what it means? It means God, the point, in His majesty. God in his multiplicity of glory. God in the wonder of his being. God who is so very strange to us. That's the God in the beginning. God in the plural points to a title of honor that's given to ancient Near Eastern kings. You called the kings in the ancient world in the plural because you were magnifying their glory. And Moses takes it, rips it off, and says, here's the king of the universe. And so it points to this, this strangeness of God being transcendent. You know what that means? I'm going to give you some theological words mixed with some biblical words. But what we're doing, all we're doing is we're starting with that word God, and we're now reaching into it like it's a suitcase, and we're starting to pull out some spectacular clothing that God wears. One's called his transcendence, which just talks about there are no comparisons to him. He's simply other. Theologian says, listen, he's transcendent. We there's such a gap, there's such a chasm between the creature and the creator that all we can say is, he's other. He's different. The biblical word is, he's holy. He's separate. There are no comparisons. So when you talk about God and say you start even to talk about, let's say, his greatness, it's a transcendent greatness. There is no comparison. When you go throughout the Bible, you hear the psalmist, the psalmist always says, the prophets always say, listen, God, there is none like you. None like you. And so when we talk about God's love and we talk about his grace, we tend to, we tend to take it to ourselves and say, well, it's kind of like this, son. It's kind of like this, honey. God's love's kind of like this. And you know what this first word in the beginning of the book says? No He's not. He's other than that. Man, how strange God is. There's another word in here that's packed into this word God, and that is infinite. 
This means he has no limitations, so this is so strange to us. He has no limitations, and then you go to God is eternal, and this is so strange to us because he has no beginning. He simply is. <laughs> now, I had us read Exodus, right? Because when we read Exodus, the, Genesis is not written to Adam and Eve or, to some, or the Nephilim that are hanging around in the world at this time, which we will get to on Wednesday nights. Genesis is written to the Israelites. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So it happens sometime after they come out of Egypt on their way to the promised land. Genesis is written during that period to those people. And so do you remember when, when they come and they ask, Moses is talking to God and he's starting to have his whole, the strangeness of God is just all over him. He's trying to figure out who he is and he knows there's one important thing about the strangeness of God. How is he going to communicate a strange God to a people? And so he has the guts to say, God, when I go to them, I'm going to tell them, God says you're to pack your bags and leave. And they're going to say to me, who is God? And Moses says, so what am I going to tell him? In the beginning, God. And God answers Moses, tell them I am. God is incomprehensible. That's one of my favorite words because I like saying this. There's always more of God than you can know. So Malcolm was talking about how God has to reveal himself, which is so true. So when he reveals himself and you get some knowledge of him and you, we start getting knowledge of him in the scriptures, just know this. Whatever you know, there's always more than you can know. Oh, I, I think I've got God figured out. No, you don't. I think I understand his way, why he sent those two hurricanes. No, you don't get off the TV. <laughs> You're creepy and you're stupid all at the same time. God is power, which means he's perfect power. We call it theologically, he's omnipotent. <laughs> you know what that means? He's the king. He's the king. What does listening to God look like? That's our question, right? Well, it means this. If we're going to ever listen to God, if we're ever going to read Genesis rightly, if we're ever going to read the Bible rightly, right from the beginning, this is an invitation to listen. This is an invitation to listen, so how do we listen? You listen first by admitting, acknowledging the strangeness of God. You know what that means practically? It's coming into the scripture and saying to God, you are strange to me. My story is strange to me. The story of the world is strange to me. I don't know it. I can't figure it out. I can't master it. I can't get to the bottom of it. Only you can. It means acknowledging very, very quickly when you read the Bible or you come to God that you have blurry vision, that you have foggy vision, that you and I can't see. 
That's how you listen. And then we say things like, oh God, help me see. Open my eyes. In fact, Paul uses that exact prayer in Ephesians. He says, open the eyes of our heart. Teach me. Show me. I'm listening. Shut up and listen, Luther said. What does it mean? Or how does it, what does it look like to listen to God? Acknowledge the strangeness of God. Admit that your vision is blurry. And it means one other thing, and that's how we're going to end. Uh, the structure of these first three verses is pretty staggering. Uh, I don't like admitting this, but I'm going to because I think it's good to. It helps me. I spent forever trying to feel. I was, on, I was on a tangent for probably about four hours in this passage. And I tell, I tell, I tell my friends, <laughs> I tell everybody, be selective in your in your study, be selective in the significant stuff of the text. Don't get sidetracked. Don't run down tangents. <laughs> and here I was, man. I was running down every rabbit hole there was in verse 2. I couldn't get out of verse 2. I couldn't figure out verse 2. In fact, we, we, this past week we're in Phoenix, and we, it, it was good in the morning because Phoenix is two hours behind, so they started their, you know, we're trying to study models of education for the center. And so they start for pastors. They're training pastors from 6 to 8.30 in the morning. So we had to get up at 5 to be there at 6, right? That was fine because we're, we're two hours back. Um, so it was only 8 or 7 to us. But then about 10 o'clock, you know, we're, we're crashing because that's like 12 o'clock, right? Well, so we're going all day. But then <laughs> I kept talking to Scott about, I don't get verse 2. And so our whole way home from the airport, from Austin to here, we were trying to figure out verse 2. And we had some really good stuff, I must say, didn't we? We came up with some great explanations, some great insights. And then I knew that I probably should just skip verse 2 because I wasn't getting to the end of this thing. But here's what I'm going to do. I want you to look at the structure because it's absolutely fascinating. Because the structure we're going to talk about now, we'll get into verse 2, probably like the depths of verse 2 on Wednesday night. And we're going to do midweek on Wednesday nights. We're going to talk about things we're not going to cover in the sermon because they can't make it into the sermon. This Wednesday, we're going to talk about probably the, the views of creation. We'll do that, and we'll probably land in verse 2 a little bit just to tease it out a little bit more because it's a theme that runs through the rest of the Bible. All right, so verse 1 summarizes Genesis 1 and 2. There you go. You want to know what Genesis 1 and 2 is about? All you have to do is look at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is a summary of the act of creation, Right? What's verse 2 doing? Verse 2 is background information. Here's a little translation. Now the earth was. See the now? So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now let's talk about the earth that he created. Now the earth was, first we learn it's, it's a formless place. You know what that means? It's chaotic. There are no spheres, no kingdoms of land, sea, sky, no forms, no kingdoms, chaos. The now, the earth was not just formless, it was void. You see that? It was a meaningless place. It was Ecclesiastes. There were no fullness. There was not one, one inch, one drop of fullness on the earth, not one bird, fish, creatures, 
teeming humans. It was a nothing, a non-existent. Now, the earth was a dark place. Do you see that? Dark and deep. The opposite of light and land. And this will be an image that will go throughout the whole Bible and the ancient world, that it was a great, chaotic, watery abyss. So what is verse 3 doing? And God said to that, let there be light. And there was. Verse 3 is the point of the passage. Literarily, grammatically, it's the point of the passage. I'm not going to bore you with the Hebrew, but it's the point of the passage. Verse 3 is the point of the book of Genesis. Verse 3 is the point of the whole Bible. Verse 3 is the point of the story of the world. Verse 3 is the point, the bottom of your story. Let there be light. Everything hangs on God's word. Your story, your heart, your relationships, your relationship to the world, all of it hangs on God's word. Do you know the Apostle John got this so well? Do you know what he said? It's going to sound eerily similar. Watch, listen to how he says it. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning? In the beginning... God, in the beginning, the Word. Here's what we need to know. God is strange, right? If we are going to know anything about God, you know what the Bible wants us to know about Him? Right off the bat, because it's going to be said nine times throughout the rest of chapter one. Whatever we know about God, even if we missed the God in the plural part, whatever we know about God, He speaks. His Word is everything. And his word, just like our affirmation, is not just conveying information. His word gets things done. Let there be light. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So now we're told that the God, in the beginning God, that's the word. That's what John says. That's how he interprets this passage. Who is this word in the beginning He was in the beginning with God. Okay. All things were made through him. Okay, okay, I guess that's Genesis 1 and 2. And without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, you already said that. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Okay, now what are we talking about? He just shifted on us. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light goes into verse 2, and it can't be overcome by the darkness. Who is this word? Who is this light? John tells us it's Jesus. 
When Jesus descended into the chaos of our sin and our death, when he descended into the darkness of our sin and our death, when he descended into the Ecclesiastes, the nothingness, the meaninglessness of our sin and our death, he said some familiar words. Let there be light. And there was. And so begins the Bible. And so begins the book of Genesis. It begins <clears throat> with Jesus. Not us. The Bible is all about Jesus. So what we're going to do is the story of the world begins with Jesus. Do you want to understand yourself? Who's going to get to the bottom of you? Jesus. And he's going to do it through Genesis. Because he's the word. He's the light. He's the let there be. So we are going to approach Genesis this way. We're going to admit that our vision is blurry together as a group. That's what we're doing. God, we admit that you are strange to us. Jesus, you're strange to us. We admit that our vision is foggy. You must show us. And then you know what we're going to do? We're going to ask for light. Amen.